Hello, I'm Olivia Braffman and welcome to If She Can, I Can, the podcast that aims to edge all of us ambitious women that little bit closer to navigating how on earth we get the high-flying career we love and have kids without totally burning yourself out and challenges the role society thinks we're supposed to play in it all. How? By talking each week to inspiring women who have proven the statistic wrong and have done just that. Let's get into it. This week, I am joined by podcast and public speaking royalty Viv Groskop, award-winning writer, comedian, broadcaster, performance coach, and mother of three. Jennifer Saunders describes her as utterly hilarious. Amongst her many accolades, Viv is the author of six books, including the best-selling How to Own the Room, Women and the Art of Brilliant Speaking, and Lift As You Climb, Women and the Art of Ambition. Her incredible podcast, How to Own the Room, is the biggest public speaking podcast in the world with over a million downloads and with the likes of Hillary Clinton, Catherine Tate and Nigella Lawson all gracing past episodes. I feel that Viv is like that wise big sister that every woman needs in their life. And through all of her different mediums, whether it's books, podcasts, stand up, speaking events, she's got your back in every situation and is confidently guiding you through life's chaos in the most empowering, down-to-earth and inspiring but very relevant way in the hope that you can become the person that you were always meant to be. That ultimate feeling of enoughness, which is my favourite word that you've coined, I think, Viv. I think I took that from your latest book, Happy High Status, which is a concept we will most definitely be getting into later. Viv, it is so cool to have you on the podcast. Welcome. Oh, it's great to meet you. Thank you for having me. So where did it all start for you? So take me right back. Your childhood, you had a great education. You ended with Cambridge University. What were you like growing up? And what was the ambition back then for you? Well, I always wanted to be a writer, really. I guess from age three or four, you know, as soon as I could read or know what reading was or write. I mean, I, apparently I came home from school. I must have gone to school when I was, I think I went to school quite late. I'm a July birthday. And I think I didn't go until it was my fifth birthday. And I came home from school on the first day. And I said, I didn't like it. They didn't teach me to read and write yet. <laughs> and I was just desperate to learn to read and write. I don't know why nobody taught me before then. I often read now about people teaching their children to read age two. I didn't do that for any of my children. I don't think I could have the patience to do it. But anyway, I didn't learn to read and write until I went to school. And I was just voracious. You know, I tried to write books, like, you know, literally like a book with five words, like written in biro on a page and all of the pages clipped together with staples. You know, I probably did that when I was about six. So I always wanted to be a writer and I was always fascinated as well by performers. You know, as a child, I loved watching Victoria Wood, Tracy Ullman, French and Saunders. I absolutely loved the Eurovision Song Contest and I wanted to be a presenter on that and speak all the different languages and say, douze points or Luxembourg and things like that. <laughs> and I was very, yeah, I was just very taken with the possibilities that life had to offer because I grew up in a very small place, um, a small town in Somerset called Bruton, which has now become a very trendy place, which is very strange to me because it was a very sweet and lovely, quiet place that no one had ever heard of in the <laughs> 1970s and 1980s when I was growing up. 
And I always wanted to move beyond that place. I felt quite suffocated by growing up in a small place. It wasn't that place in particular. I think I would have felt the same anywhere. I wanted to go to the city. I wanted to do things. I wanted to meet writers. I wanted to meet journalists. I wanted to meet actors. I wanted to do stuff. And I felt that hunger from an early age. And I really think that that came from my grandmother. My grandmother went to school till she was 16 and she spoke a little bit of French, but she didn't really have the education that she wanted. She grew up in really difficult circumstances. Her parents just ran shops and eventually they ran a pub. It was always very kind of scrabbling around trying to figure out how we're going to make this work. And when she was a young woman, she met my grandfather. They at first lived above a pub with her parents and then they moved out and ran their own shop. I spent a lot of time with them in their shop, which was like a corner shop in Amersham in Buckinghamshire when I was very young, um, especially when my sister was born. She was sick. She's totally fine now. I hasten to add, many decades later. But my sister was ill for a long time and she was a baby. So I was sent to live with my grandparents in their shop. I was very influenced then. I would have been about three years old by my grandmother using the shop as as theatre. You know, she really was like that sort of pub landlady kind of energy, always with her lipstick on, always with a smile, always trying to upsell always trying to keep people in the shop so they would buy more stuff, <laughs> but and not in a horrible way, in a kind of wanting to be part of the community and help people kind of way. And I would see how, you know, she really put her face on for public life in a shop. And so that was very familiar to me from a young age. And I, I loved, you know, I was very close with her. She died about 15 years ago, but I was very close with her throughout my whole life. And we're very similar in character. That was a huge influence on me. And she very much wanted me to have the life and the education that she never had. I didn't exactly feel pressured by that. I guess I felt quite privileged and that I've just got something to live up to. Um, It wasn't a burden. It was something I was excited by. So I tried really hard from a young age to live up to that. You know, I got a scholarship to the posh school. I worked really hard at the posh school, was the first person in my family to go to university. You know, very similar story to lots of people in my generation, people who were born in the 60s and 70s. So I was born in 1973. Those things were very informative for me. And also, you know, my parents were very supportive of me too. I have a younger sister as well, who is a French teacher now, who had a similar experience to me. She's perhaps not quite as, um, I was going to say grabby, like I'm very grabby with life. You know, I want to do all the things. She's she's a bit calmer probably than, than I am. I think that comes across. And I mean, it's incredible that literally from the age of five, you had this you had this thought that writing was a path that you wanted to pursue or you, you were fascinated by it. And clearly the kind of tenacity of your grandma and working in the shop, you ultimately go on to get a job in journalism and work within journalism. And you started in Esquire and then you went to the Daily Express. What was your kind of foot into that world? And how did you end up climbing the ranks in, in journalism? Well, my foot into that world was something that is now historic and archaic and probably is not going to exist in 10 years time perhaps even doesn't exist now (laughs) which is that I worked in local newspapers so when I was 14 or 15 I did my work experience um, at the Shepton Mallet Journal and the Wells Journal um, which I don't even know if they still exist actually I need to look it up if they do it's probably just online Mm. but those were you know print paper newspapers that 
existed in in huge numbers, had huge read, readership. These papers. There was also the Western Gazette where I grew up, Blackmore Vale magazine. These are the kind of places that I aspired to to work. You know, as a teenager, I met people who worked on these papers. I met journalists. I met subs. I met editors. That was the world that I wanted to be in. So I got some experience in local newspapers, and then when I went to university and I studied languages, I forced my way in to a French newspaper. I worked there for a summer. I forced my way into an English language newspaper in St. Petersburg in Russia when I was doing my year abroad and I worked there for six months. And then it was quite disappointing for me when I finished university because I, I just applied for everything. I mean, to get the French newspaper job, I literally applied. It wasn't even a job. You know, they created something for me just for a summer, but I applied a hundred places and only one replied. Wow. And they came and said, I don't even know if euros would have existed then. It was probably francs. Mm, so yeah, if, you, if you come, we'll give you 50 francs a week for your lunch, which was probably, I don't know, like 50 pounds or five pounds. I don't even <laughs> know what it was. And I got a grant from my university to go and do that. And I don't even know if these op- opportunities would exist now. It would be completely different. I would say to people, get a blog, do a podcast, learn to how to do vlogging, you know, get a TikTok account. <laughs> it would be totally different. But that was my way in, was that quite traditional route. And when I finished university, I couldn't get in anywhere. I applied to Reuters. I applied to The Guardian, The Telegraph. I've never worked for Reuters, but I applied loads of places that I have since worked for as a freelancer. But I was turned down by all of these places, largely, I think, because those jobs even then were in very short supply. They were starting to become in ever short supply. This would be in the mid to late 1990s. And it's just very difficult. You know, you probably had like a one in a thousand chance of getting those jobs. And although I had good work experience and a great academic CV, those things are not going to open every door for you. So I got whatever jobs I could get. I got a work experience on Cosmopolitan. And there the editor said to me, I think she didn't literally say, I think you're very grabby, but that's what she meant. Like you're, you're hungry. Like I know you really want this. You need to cancel this journalism postgrad that you've applied to do. Cause I'd applied to do a postgrad in journalism because I had no, nothing else going for me. You know, I had no job. You need to not do that. And you need to come and work with me. We can't pay you, but just come for four weeks and we'll see what opens up. And I went and worked on Cosmo for four weeks And at the end of that four weeks, I applied for a job in the building, which happened to be with Esquire magazine. And I got that job. I nearly didn't get that job because my typing speed wasn't good enough. They said to me, which again, I don't know if this would happen now. So they said, you know, well, it's great that you have a first from Cambridge, but you can't type. You need to be able to type at least 60 words a minute. So um, they said, we'll take you on, but you're going to have to come for typing every morning at six o'clock for I think it was six weeks. So I went and that actually was probably the best thing that's happened in my whole life is that I learned to touch type. (laughs) And I can touch type like more than 100 words a minute. I'm like 60 words a minute sounds like a really sounds really fast anyway, but I I have no idea. No, 60 words per minute is pretty slow. Yeah. (laughs) So that was my start. And I was basically like the editor's secretary. I was the editorial assistant. I was, you know, photocopier in chief. Wow. And I worked my way up there from being assistant to being a junior editor, a commissioning editor. And then I moved over into newspapers. When the editor moved, I moved with her. It was Rosie Boycott, who was one of the first female 
newspaper editors. And a huge influence on you and your life, clearly. My gosh, if she hadn't have done that, who knows what would have happened? Yeah, it was great to work for her at that time. And also, just before I got that job in Esquire, when I was working on Cosmopolitan, the features editor of Cosmopolitan then, uh, which would have been in 1995, was Catherine Viner who went on to become the first woman editor of The Guardian. Oh, my gosh. So I worked for her when I was 22. <laughs> so that was very cool. And you go on to write for near enough every top publication. As you said, as a freelancer, you were described, I think this was in about 2009, you were described as one of the most successful freelance journalists in the UK. Why were you so successful? Why were you so good at it? And well, did you even think of yourself as successful at the time, even though this is how you're being described? I love that I'm getting real Eamon Holmes vibes <laughs> from this interview, by the way. It's like, this is your life. I love it. Yeah, that's a really great question. And I, it wasn't me who put that label on myself. Somebody else put it on me and it ended up on Wikipedia, the, like, the most prolific freelance journalist. I take it if I was you. Well, yeah, I do take it. But I also, it's very interesting when you go freelance because because I think this is true now, just as it was then, although I think now it is more ever more acceptable to be freelance, to the extent that I don't think people even say that they're freelance anymore. They mm. just say, I'm a graphic designer, or I'm a writer, or I'm a photographer. Like back then, people used to say, I'm a freelancer, to make it clear up front, like, I don't have a job, <laughs> or I don't have an accreditation, I guess, an accreditation with a newspaper. So back then, people were almost quite suspicious and sniffy sometimes about freelancers. And there was always this sense of you must have this because you got sacked from a job or because you can't get a job. You, nobody would do this because they want to. It was very much not, the, I'm talking about the late 90s here. It was very much not the culture of hustle. You know, everybody has a side hustle. And mm. this was really like the beginning of, of the internet, the beginning of social media. At that time, I didn't have any social media at all. I wouldn't have even known what that was. I met my husband in 1998, who is also a journalist. He's a radio producer. And on our first date, he explained to me what Ask Jeeves was. Oh my gosh, I remember Ask Jeeves. Which was the precursor to Google. So this is the era that we're talking about. Like people forget, you know, this is kind of relatively recent. So at that time, it was quite unusual to try to have an independent career as a creative. And everyone assumed it meant that you were unemployable. And I realized, I think I read as much as I could. I'm always trying to read everything. So I would order books. I mean, did Amazon exist then? It must have done. I must have ordered books from Amazon. I must have looked at early websites. I must have, every single person I knew who was freelance or had been freelance and also talked to editors. I talked to people all the time, like, how do you do this? What were the difficult things? What were the easy things? What do you wish you'd known when you started? What's the biggest pitfall? I always have all of these questions to try and, you know, squeeze everything out of everybody else's experience. Mm, and make your own a little bit smooth, I guess. Exactly. I figured out early on that one of the most important things about being freelance, which I have been now for 23 years, I left a job, a newspaper job with a redundancy. So I had six months pay when I left and I thought, okay, I've got six months to try this and then I'll have to get a job. And however many years later, 23 years later, no job. I learned early on, you need to decide this is my job. This is my job. I am the boss. I'm the IT department. I'm the accountancy department. The accountancy department had to get fired about 10 years ago and completely outsourced because I'm 
rubbish at things like that. That took me a long time to realize that you need to outsource the things that you're terrible at so that you can really concentrate on the things that you're good at. But you need to take yourself really seriously without without being really annoying and boring about it. But in your own mind, you need to take yourself seriously and think, how is this going to work in this six months, in this year, in this two years, in this five years? And because I knew that I wanted to have children, I had my first child two years or three years after being freelance. You know, I knew like you have to make this work. This is not a game. It's huge. And it's not easy being freelance and with children because you don't necessarily have the privileges that other people might have going into that. So what is going on behind the scenes for you? You've got this freelance career. You want to start a family. How did you do it? What was the transition like for you? I've been lucky in the sense that I always had a partner in this, which is my husband who has always had a salaried job, but it was always my intention that I always earn more money, the same or more money than I earned from my newspaper job. That was always my intention as a freelancer. And I was like, if it dips below there, you go and get a job. (laughs) And I always wanted to earn like the same or more than my husband so that I make an equal contribution, if not more than he is. So I always made sure that those things were my kind of anchor of, is this working? Those are my early markers of like, is this really a good idea? Because when you first start doing things like that as well, you have loads of people who'll say to you, oh no, that's never going to work. Or, oh, I had a friend who was freelance for two years and then they went bankrupt. Or my mum was like, why are you leaving a newspaper job? You know, that's what you wanted your whole life. How could you leave this? So you have loads of people saying to you, this is a bad idea. And you have to keep saying to yourself, no, I've set these parameters and this is my proof. I did that really and became prolific by learning that you have to pitch as many ideas as possible. So you have to be really open to coming up with ideas, to building relationships, to pitching stuff that people might steal. You know, you'd send in an idea and the next day you see it's been written by a staffer. Hmm, Coincidence that they thought of the same idea. But you can't get horrible about things like that because often the good ideas, everybody's going to have a good idea, especially in newspapers. Lots of people are going to have the same idea. So you have to be very easy come, easy go about that kind of thing. You have to be completely open to rejection. Now that I think back, what you need to actually be, and you know what I'm going to (laughs) say, you need to be happy high status. (laughs) So you need to be, easy come easy go water off a duck's back if it's a no go straight back in with something else and that's how I learned really to be prolific and I know that at that time and I don't really do this kind of work very much anymore but at that time a lot of people looked on me and would say to me I don't understand how you get all this work why do you get all the work Why were you getting all the work? Well, because I pitched for it, because Mm. I sent the idea. Later on, I discovered Seth Godin. You know, I really love Seth Godin's work. And that is the principle that he teaches of choose yourself. I never waited for other people to choose me. How are you doing this with three kids? It's such a hustle in the freelance world. And you've got three kids and you, you know, you've got your husband supporting. But what does life look like for you behind the scenes? Well, what it looks like, I'm really glad of the opportunity to talk about this, actually, because I don't want to pour water on anybody else's situation or on anybody else's anger and fire about this, because they're right to be angry. It's very difficult. (laughs) There isn't very much support for working parents, freelance or otherwise. I really admire the work that they do at Pregnant and Screwed. I love their work. Jolie Brearley 
does that and I really admire her stuff and it's you know that's still an urgent conversation and it was 20 years ago when I had my first child but it doesn't have to be difficult if you take a lot of the responsibility for it on yourself and I took full responsibility and I hope this isn't annoying to people to hear this but I'm just going to tell it like I know it. I took responsibility on it for this on myself. Like this is my problem. I chose to have these children. I chose to have this career. I have a husband, which like, you know, not everybody has a second partner to back them up in this. I have, you know, supportive parents. My parents didn't live near us, but my parents were supportive. So were my husband's parents who also didn't live near us, but you know, they were in our lives. I had my sister who's also not near, but supportive. I had a lot of things going for me. And I just thought, I just need to work out the financial of this. So what I did, again, ask loads of people, talk to loads of people, figure out what's working for people, what's not working. And I realized very early on that if you need to pay for a wraparound childcare, so if we're talking from like seven in the morning until six in the evening, especially if five minutes late incurs this financial penalty, 10 minutes late, this financial penalty, that kind of childcare is super expensive. And that's the sort of childcare that you need if you have a job in the city or a job where somebody's clock watching on your behalf or wondering why you've taken so long for lunch, those kind of jobs. So I realized I don't want to have the childcare costs that are associated with that kind of job. I'm going to make this work in a way that works for me. So early on, I found a nanny who still works with us, even though my children are nearly grown up now. She's still you know, she works for me in my business now. I've known her for 20 years. She's one of the most trusted people in my life. I found a nanny who was willing to work four hours a day for me, six hours a day, three hours on different days and have other clients and other customers, other families, other old people that she runs errands for. She, you know, runs her business and her life in the same way that I run mine, which is that it's not a nine to five and I have multiple clients. So I was really lucky that I was able to find somebody who would do that. So I was paying for maybe 20, 30, 40 hours of childcare a week, depending on what stage my children were at. And I was working around that. And I was also lucky in that I had a job where I could sometimes take my children with me when they were very small. I mean, that's not something, this very personality driven, these choices. I think that's something we don't acknowledge as well. You know, these things were quite easy things for me to do because it suited my personality. I would go to an interview with a baby and I wouldn't tell anyone. And when I got there, I would say, what are they going to (laughs) do? Yeah, this is my baby. I'm going to make sure that he's asleep during the interview. And I would, you know, time everything. And and it just worked. I look back on it and I think that was a bit crazy. (laughs) And I also think maybe that was a bit entitled of me. And I think probably it was. (laughs) But it worked. Well, nobody ever complained about it. So I think when people are freelance, it feels a bit of an uphill struggle. I guess what you did is go, okay, what are all the options available to me? What are the benefits of being freelance versus if I wasn't freelance? And how can I then make it work in and around that? Because you're right, there are certain benefits when no one's expecting you to be in a certain place at a certain time. Therefore, you can sort of create your own rules around the childcare that you want. Yeah, I just want to pick you up on uphill struggle. I wouldn't describe my life as that. And I would always look as at the people who are not finding it an uphill struggle and ask them, yeah. what, you, what are you doing to make that easier? Yeah. And 
people often said to me when I was working and my children were starting to go to school, you know, that becomes a big flashpoint for a lot of women, especially because sometimes you've gone back to work with very small children. You've got those arrangements. Then they start school and the school day is only half days, whereas the nursery day was whole days. And it's a whole different arrangement that you have to try and figure out. Yeah, you have a child of a certain age who isn't going to start for a whole half term, but isn't allowed mm. to go to the nursery anymore. What are you going to do? I knew women who gave up their jobs because of things like that. And people would say to me, oh, you're so lucky because you managed to find a nanny who will work between 10 and 4. And I would just say, well, what's stopping you from putting a postcard in the in the post office window to find this person? Oh, I love that attitude. I mean, what is stopping you? And they would say, well, you never know who might answer. I, you know, they might be awful. Well, okay, so, you know, so give them a, a contract for four weeks and, and then if it doesn't work out, then have someone else. I mean, mm. people put up a lot of barriers of worst case scenario and thinking, oh, this is going to be an uphill struggle. But if you think, you know, it's like if people know who Marie Forleo is, I love Marie Forleo. Um, she's like sort of next generation Oprah Winfrey in the US. She says everything is figure outable. Like everything is figure outable. And to your point, there are, and I guess the kind of basis for this podcast, there are people who have done it. What can we learn from them that we yeah. can maybe apply to our own situation in our own way? Something I want to get into, and maybe this might have been one of those times in your life where kids had sort of transitioned to another stage and it freed up other opportunity for you. You hit 40 and something clearly seemed to shift. It feels like you had a sort of mini reinvention. You dived headfirst into stand-up comedy, which was something that you wanted to pursue for a long time. What I find hilarious is you really dived into it. You didn't sort of just dip your toe in the water, but you went for it. I think you described that somewhere as a reckless experiment, which I love. Where did that all come from this intent to do something so drastically different when you hit 40? Yeah, to me, it wasn't so drastically different in some ways once I got it into my head that I wanted to do it. And it did happen around my 40th birthday, but in some ways, it maybe sort of on some deep level, it was related to the fact that, I, yeah, it was definitely related to the fact that I was thinking, you know, I'm going to die. <laughs> like I am aging before my own eyes. What are you doing with your life? Like, have you done all the things that you wanted to do? <laughs> What's going on? So it was really, you can hear from what I've said already about my freelance career, you know, like I loved, I loved being a journalist. I love writing. I love, you know, the commissioning process and working with editors. I loved all of that, but I did it for getting on for 10 years while my children were very little. And then really in the run up to being 40, so this would have happened when I was about 36 or 37, I got let go from a couple of quite big contracts. So I got let go from a contract at The Guardian and I got let go from a contract at The Evening Standard. And both of those contracts had been really hard won because when you're freelance, it wasn't that I wanted a contract so that I didn't have to freelance anymore. It just gave me like a, a foundation. You're always looking for that foundation. So you're not relying on, every single commission adding up to your your income basically so I had these two really great contracts and I did a lot of other work on the side and the contracts were not exclusive but when I got let go of those it was a real kind of a real I was going to say stab in the back but it was like a stab in the front it's like a stab in the heart and it was around sort of 2008 2009 so that's when I would have been 35 36 it was the financial crash. And, you know, I see now that it wasn't really personal. <laughs> it wasn't remotely personal. At that time, newspapers lost a ton of money. They lost a ton of advertising. 2008, 2009 would be the time 
lots of people first went on Facebook. Maybe a couple of years later, they first went on Twitter. You know, that was really the time that everybody's focus was starting to shift. Advertising was collapsing. Newspapers, the financial model was collapsing. They were all starting to realize that print somewhere down the line was going to die. And so the contracts that I lost were really part of that phenomenon. And that coincided with me thinking, I've been doing this for 10 years. I can see that what I've done for the past 10 years, it's going to dry up over the next 10. And over the next 10 after that, it probably won't exist at all. And bear in mind, nobody even thought of AI at that time. That's I'm just dropping that in there. That that's a similar kind of like a little bomb that just drops on an industry. And I could sense something really big was shifting. So I started to do a lot of, again, asking around, talking to people, talking to career coaches, talking to friends who'd made career transitions, talking to loads of interesting writers and people I admired. And I just realized like I had all, and I thought back to that time, like, you know, you love Victoria Wood, you love, <laughs> you love French and Saunders when you're a little girl. What happened to all of those things that you wanted to do? I always did loads of theater and drama. I did lots of comedy. I was on stage at university with Stephen Fry. He hosted a comedy night that I performed in. I'd always done those things, but always as a kind of side idea not as a professional thing and I just thought well I've got nothing to lose and I need to do this I really need to do this and I'm going to be letting myself down if I don't do this so I started you know I did workshops I did clown training I did acting training I did all kinds of things and all of that really was subsidized by the fact that I could continue to do my freelance journalism so I continued to work again you know this is something most have I feel so privileged and so lucky that I could do that because I didn't have a job you know I didn't have a boss who was saying no sorry you can't leave work early to go to a comedy course it's the control again another kind of way of looking at your life and finding that there was huge benefit in it in terms of what you wanted to pursue yeah exactly and I was just thinking if you're freelance and you don't pursue the things that you want to do that light you up and make you feel like this is what I was meant to do then why are you bothering being freelance? Just go and work for some, work for somebody. <laughs> so I loved the fact that I could use my freedom as a freelancer to try this thing. And then it came to the point where I realized, oh, I'm actually quite serious about this. And I wasn't sure that I was going to be serious about this because I didn't really know. I knew how to make money out of writing and freelancing as a journalist. I didn't really know how to make money out of comedy. We could do a whole massive podcast about how to make money out of comedy. So I didn't really know how that worked, even though I'm incredibly nosy and I ask loads of questions and I connect with people quite easily. I found it very difficult to get concrete answers about how all of that works. And it is like a lot of interesting industries. A lot of that is shrouded in mystery, even for people who are massively successful. The same in the publishing industry. You know, a lot of people will say, well, we don't really know why that thing became massively financially successful. It just did. So I was trying to work out how do you actually make this professional? And do I really want to do this? professionally and do I have what it takes and so to answer that question I decided to do this 100 gigs in 100 consecutive nights because then it, it seems very sensible to me you know within three months you don't waste like one year two years three years of your life that's such a good way of looking at it but it's only three months 
and then you know. How quickly can you find the answer to something essentially and just intensify the process as much as humanly possible? Yeah, and as everything in my life, worst case scenario, I'll write about it. Worst case scenario. Which you did. Yeah, I didn't have it in mind when I did the process of I must write about this. I, I didn't want to put myself under that pressure that I would be doing it. I didn't tell anyone I was doing it for a start. Like obviously my family and friends knew I was doing this, but I didn't make it public in any way that I was doing a hundred gigs and a hundred consecutive nights because I wanted to be able to do it on my own terms and just forget about it if I decided to turn my back on it. But I kept a diary and I left that door open for myself. If I do manage to do this, if I do finish it, if I do learn something interesting that I want to pass on to people, then I've got that. Oh, I just love it. I didn't know if it was some kind of big, almost like a publicity thing of if I do 100 gigs in 100 days, there's a story in itself. But actually, it was just your own personal experiment to see if this is something you wanted to pursue. Well, yeah, it was both, you know, because I knew that if I was going to write about it and keep that door open as a possibility, then it needs to have some kind of structure and to be interesting to people. Mm. But it wouldn't be interesting to me if it was just a stunt. Yeah. Like you're doing it for publicity or well, publicity for what? That's not the right sentiment behind, well, why anyone should really do anything. Well, I don't really care about what anybody's sentiment is for it. Like, if people want to follow a stunt thing, then God, good luck to them. There are loads of great stunts that have been done from, you know, the guy who took a fridge around Ireland and all kinds of things. You know, stunts can lead to some really brilliant and hilarious things. But yeah, it was something that I genuinely wanted to do. And because I had three small children and a husband and a mortgage... I didn't want to be somebody who spent five years, you know, tinkering around the edges of the open mic scene, getting paid five pounds if I was lucky. You know, I wanted to, are you in or are you out? Oh, I love that. And that led you to your first book. Another five books then followed, including your bestseller, How to Own the Room, which your podcast speaks to the same theme of. You do events and you speak about this similar theme in terms of this concept of owning the room. I'm keen to know what were the kind of catalysts behind that. Did you see in your various experiences going through life that there was a lack of women, so to speak, owning the room in, in their own different way in their own life that led you to kind of go, I need to address this because I'm seeing it too often? Yeah, if I have an idea and I want to pursue it and I think I can get other people interested in it, then it's often got two sides to it. One is I've noticed this interesting thing that we either find difficult to talk about or we talk about all the time and then nothing ever changes. And women's self-expression and women in power and leadership and women in comedy and stand-up, women all, you know, I mean, I don't need to explain to people what I mean by this. You know, we all know that this is a question and it's a very interesting question because the same question has been posed for 70 years, obviously longer if you go back to Mary Wollstonecraft. If you think of the modern workplace, we're still facing the same questions and we're still asking, is it because women can't speak up or is it because they're being prevented from speaking up? So I knew that that was really interesting. And then the other part of, I knew I could get other people interested in that idea and they would get it. And I hoped I could introduce some ideas that would maybe start to bring about some kind of change. But I'm very um, cautious about what change you can actually bring about. You think it's a tiny, tiny bit, even a tiny bit is worth it. But the other part of it for me is when I do something, it's often a corrective 
of something that I've previously done that hasn't worked, or I want to make more explicit something that I tried to do and it didn't quite come off. So I would say when I moved into comedy after journalism, it was because it hadn't quite worked out for me that that was going to be my path to self-expression and something that I enjoyed and loved and could go on doing. It hadn't worked out. So I tried something new. Then with my first book, I Laughed, I Cried, which was about doing this comedy. It did really well in terms of publicity, PR, reviews. It got tons of attention and loads of like great celebrity quotes and all that stuff. But it didn't really sell. It wasn't a massive bestseller. Joe Brands gave me the quote of like, eat, pray, love in a comedy club. And that's what I wanted it to be. But it was not Eat, Pray, Love. And I am not, you know, sitting in a, um, all, all power to Elizabeth Gilbert, but I'm not sitting in an Elizabeth Gilbert style mansion with Julia Roberts on speed dial making the movie of my book, right? So it had that kind of reception, but it didn't have the sales to match. And I thought a lot about like, why didn't people get that book? You know, why didn't it take off? Why didn't people understand it in the sentiment that I understood it? And there are loads of reasons for that. And every book can't take off in the way that you want it to that's just life but I really want to think oh how can I do that again so that they actually get what I meant and what I meant with that book part of what I meant with it was take power of things yourself do things yourself do scary things don't believe all the myths that people tell you about this thing is so scary that if you go on stage, you're going to be sick and wet yourself and it's going to be the worst thing that ever happens to you. It's not. And so I wanted to write a book that explicitly said that because the message that I tried to put in my other book had not really pushed that. And so I thought, right, what happens if I write something that is just totally down the line, like how to own the room? This is what this is. And this is how to do it. And this is what, how Michelle Obama does it. This is how Oprah Winfrey does it. This is how Virginia Woolf did it. This is how Joan Rivers does it. And choose all these different examples of women and analyze what they do and bring in all my own experiences from comedy and be very explicit. And then everything I've done usually leads in some way to the next thing. And it's often like correcting something that didn't quite work or augmenting it in some way. And it doesn't mean that that thing doesn't exist in and of itself. Like, I'm, you know, I love How to Win the Room. I love that people get a lot out of it. I never get tired of, of talking about that book. And, you know, I hope the podcast will last forever. We're now in our 20th series with 2 million downloads. So I hope that goes on and on. But the thing I really wanted to push that I couldn't bring out in How to Win the Room was about internal confidence because a lot of how to win the room is very practical like how do you stand what do you say what do you do if somebody asks you a question you don't know the answer it's a lot of those things but I really wanted to get to okay you probably know the answer to those questions actually but why are you still scared why do you not want to do this why are you questioning your own confidence and obviously you can't put all of those things in one book <laughs> so that led into happy high status Look, what I adore about you, I think, is you're not one of these authors or speakers that I kind of cringe at because you kind of say, this is the recipe of life and it just seems seemingly impossible. You're not perfect. And I think you've got so much humility about you. And there is this sort of effortless confidence, which I know is the sort of really whole kind of mindset behind Happy High Status. Why did you decide to write the book? And for those listening, what can they expect to get from it? 
I should probably explain, first of all, what this expression means, <laughs> right? <laughs> so it's three words, happy, high status. And it's taken as a whole expression. So happy, high status. Is Michelle Obama happy, high status? Yes, obviously. Is George Clooney happy, high status? Is Donald Trump? Hmm, interesting question. So we get to talk about, you know, who's happy, high status and who isn't. What does this expression mean? It's an expression that comes from improv, comedy, theater, anybody who's trained in acting or knows the work of Keith Johnston, who wrote a book about status and how we read it on stage and on screen. Anybody who's trained in that will know this expression and will know how important status is. So happy high status is an idea that I came across when I was first studying stand up and I was first performing and I was doing a lot of improv, including at this amazing place called the Spontaneity Shop in London. And I had this great teacher there called Alex McLaren, who I talk about in the book, who first said these words. And I was just completely fascinated by like, what does that mean? Happy high status? Where does that come from? And we would do exercises in class in improv class where you raise and you lower your status. So for example, it's not just to do with social status. So like, you know, a butler and a king, it's to do with your emotional status. So for example, you could have a king who actually is really insecure and doesn't really want to be the king. And the butler is the one who's really in charge. The butler is, unless they're a really insufferable, horrible person, is very possibly the one who has the happy high status over the king. So if you start to imagine those kind of scenarios, you realize that we see these playing out all of the time, especially in theater and in, in film, in television. Think of something like Succession. You know, the TV show Succession is all about not who has got status, like so who's up, who's down. It's more kind of who is happy high status, like who is okay with what they've got. That's a big part of the narrative. So being happy high status is really about being okay with what you've got, not always trying to get one over on other people, not being subservient to other people. It's a neutral position where you're presenting the best version of yourself on a good day when you're not having your buttons pushed, basically. And I found it really useful in stand-up because you need to have that equilibrium, that loss of ego, that sense of generosity if you have a joke that doesn't land. You, you know, that's, that's okay. Just move on to the next. And it's not the audience's fault because they didn't get it. And last night, the other audience did. Just move along. You need to have it if somebody in the audience, you know, heckles you. You just need to be okay with these things. So I really found it a very useful concept for me. And I began to think a lot about what would it be like if everybody was happy high status all of the time in life, you know? And the more that I talk about this, I'm having loads of great conversations with people about this at the moment. This concept is everywhere. You know, this is a concept from Zen Buddhism. If you're into Buddhism, this is what Zen is. Uh, there's an Italian word called sprezzatura that means this. Uh, there's the French expression bien dans sa peau well in your skin. That's very similar to happy high status. So this concept is floating around. And I love the concept of happy high status because it is like confidence and it allows us to have a conversation about confidence, but it doesn't have the baggage of the word confidence because I feel there are so many people, myself included, who've heard messages since childhood of, oh, you're not confident enough to do this, or you're too confident. What have you got to be so confident about? 
oh, well, you know, we're really looking for somebody with a bit more confidence. Confidence has like a ton of baggage. Like some mm. of it is really positive. Some of it's really negative. A lot of it is associated with messages that we received in our childhood. And especially when you're a teenager, you know, there's a whole chapter in the book about Sandy and Danny in the film Grease and their kind of status switch that occurs during that film. Because in that end scene, in the you're the one that I want scene, they're both trying to be a sort of pretend adult version of happy high status, which we all know is a bit fake because, you know, there's no way Sandy's going to wake up tomorrow and put those tight leather trousers on again because they're just not her. But that's a real, a really interesting teenage take on how we try to find our confidence as teenagers. And I think it takes a certain kind of maturity and a bit of experience to really be happy high status. Is it a bit of a fake it till you make it? Is it sort of like if I can channel this perspective and mindset, if I do it enough times, I'll become it? Yeah, I write a lot about fake it till you make it in the book because it's something that people have asked me a lot about in the context of how to own the room. And I'm personally not a big fan of fake it till you make it unless people find it really useful. Like if you find it useful, just do it and it works for you, great. Like if it gets you to the next level, great. For me, I don't like it because we can read fake. All of us Mm. can read fake. Like how are you going to fake it till you make it? Like fake it to who you're going to fake it to yourself or you're going to fake it to other people <laughs> like you know and it's the same if you think about sandy in that last scene where she says you know tell me about it stud and she's pretending to smoke and she doesn't know what to do with the cigarette i mean that's fake it till you make it like but we know it's fake mm. so you can fake it till you make it if you're quite relaxed about it and you're using that concept to let yourself have a go at something and not be perfect. That's a positive way to use it. But if you're trying to do it to pretend to be something that you're not, I think that's, you're going to run out of road pretty quickly. Mm. You're, you're better off trying to find a way of, okay, how can I find the baby steps that will allow me to do this like me. Well, that's the beauty of it. I think there are so many different personas. And if one doesn't quite resonate with you, another one will which I think is so nice in terms of, to your point of, imagine if every single person could be happy high status. I guess the hope is that you'll find a persona that will resonate with you, that you can kind of think about. Yeah, I wouldn't describe it as persona because I feel like that makes people feel as if they have to be something that they're not. I would say a version of yourself, like it's the version of yourself on your best day, surrounded by people you really trust, feeling your most comfortable. And from all of the people I've talked to over the last five years around how to in the room, whether it's about neurodiversity, any kind of inclusion, any kind of social anxiety, all of these issues that we talk about all the time now, those people, anybody who feels like I'm not super confident, I'm not some kind of tap dancing, musical theatre auditioning person, this stereotype that we have of a confident person. That is not the persona that I'm asking you to find. You know, you can do this happy high status, even if you have extreme social anxiety. You can do this even if you're shy. You can do this if you don't really like talking. You can do this if you're quiet. You know, Greta Thunberg has extreme happy high status. She doesn't do it by pretending to be Michelle Obama. She is herself, truly. Amazing. Gosh, thank you. 
I can't wait for people to dig in and read this book. And ultimately, thank you for sharing your wisdom. For so many people, you're such a cheerleader of so many women. I know that's something that you're hugely passionate about. I think people can take a lot from your fresh perspective in terms of whatever your situation is, there's a different way to look at it where you can make things work for you and find the benefit in in things that maybe other people can't quite see. So hopefully this will help people to kind of see that fresh way of thinking. Oh, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed talking to you. Viv, I'm a huge fan. Thank you so much for your time today and being on the podcast. Thank you so much for listening. If you liked this episode, please don't forget to leave me a quick review and subscribe. It helps us reach a bigger audience of women more than you know. And if there is an awesome individual who needs to share their story on this podcast, I would love to hear from you. My details are in the description below. I will see you next week.